Well, it's good to be back here to share God's Word with you. I, uh, I enjoyed the other two speakers that I heard. Uh, that young guy that spoke the first week didn't do too bad. I'm, it's always a risk when you ask your son to preach. Uh, could embarrass you a little bit, but he didn't do that. He preached the Word, and I appreciate that very much. You know what happens usually when I'm out of the pulpit for three weeks? I got a lot to say when I come back. <laughs> and I, I heard there's a football game today. <clears throat> so let's bow in prayer. <laughs> ha ha, a little pastor joke there. <laughs> you should have been quicker to get up and go. You see. Never fear, Glenn has been uh, reminding me almost daily this week of, of my sacred duty to finish uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> One of the things that's going to happen today when those boys play football is they are going to push the envelope of what is allowable and what is not allowable, and there will be some men there in black and white shirts. Uh, could be a woman there too. I guess there's some women that are, are refing in the NFL now. Um, deciding whether they have broken the rule or not broken the rule. And of course now we have uh, not only, uh, you know, I don't know how many guys there are, eight guys down on the field or something like that. Now we have the instant playback and uh, a coach can challenge a play. But we, whether the coach challenges or not, we get to see everyone in slow motion from multiple angles. And what's amazing is not that they get it wrong once in a while. What's amazing is they get it right most of the time. We look at those playbacks and go, yeah, sure enough, his foot was in, his foot was out, whatever it was. And they are doing that this quick with 22 guys swarming around, hollering at them, and 70,000 in the stands screaming at them. Boom, and they get it right most of the time. They make those judgment calls. How challenging that must be. We're coming to a passage of Scripture today that tells us we need to be able to make judgment calls. It is a godly thing to make judgment calls, and in fact, God is urging us to become judges. If you can believe that, you know, everybody likes to quote that verse, judge not that you be not judged. Well, here's a passage where God says you should judge. Follow me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if I didn't tell you that already. I'm going to pick up 1 Corinthians again. I left it off a few months ago. We're going to pick it up in chapter 6. Dare any of you having a matter against another to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. We're not going to cover the whole passage today. That's where you say thank you, Pastor. There you go. <laughs> in part because it's a three-sermon passage. You know, there's so much in here for us to really grasp. This. this is a radical concept. It was a radical concept in the first century, and it's still a radical concept to say that Christians should not take another Christian to court over a dispute, but that we should settle it right here. Wow. That's getting right down where it lives. Christians should settle disputes in the church, not in the secular courts. That's the clear message of this passage. And the first reason is what I want to talk about today, and it comes from verses 2 to 3. God says that since Christians are going to judge the world, we should be able to settle disputes between brothers. Did you notice that as we read through? Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, and the word saint is just another word for a, a believer. When you accept Christ into your heart, the righteousness of Christ is put in you, and you are holy, and that's what this word is. You are a saint. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Did you know that someday you're going to be helping Christ to judge the world? That is the thing that we need to understand today because God wants us to, to know that we are capable now of judging, of, of settling disputes, of have, helping brothers to work together. So the question we have to ask, first of all, is when will Christians judge the world? We're pretty sure Christians aren't in charge right now. Right? Right. And it doesn't look like it's going to come at the 2016 election. So when's it going to happen? Well, I'm going to give you a, a very brief little timeline from the cross to eternity. Okay? We'll put the cross at A.D. If you want to put a date on this and draw it on your paper, uh, put the cross at A.D. 33 or thereabouts. And uh, we know that um, there has been a time span of at least 1,900 years you know, you could do the math and figure out the exact, I'm, I'm not that big on that, but you could figure out where we're at, and the next thing on God's timetable is what we call the rapture. If we wanted to be extremely literally biblical, we'd call it the catching away. And the catching away is spoken of here in 1 Thess Thessalonians 4. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. The word asleep here is a, a, a metaphorical word for death. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who are asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That's where that word rapture comes from. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
and thus we shall always be with the Lord. If you don't know, if you haven't had the chance to study your Bible enough yet in your Christian life, the next thing on God's timetable is this event we call the rapture. And, and there are several things that are gonna happen in sequence. And the first one is that Christ is gonna come from heaven with a shout and a trumpet sound. And those who are in Christ are gonna hear. And the first ones that are gonna answer the call are the dead in Christ. Now, if we were to study the whole scripture on, on this topic of what happens at death, we would understand that the moment you die, you are present with the Lord, your spirit, your person, your inner man, but your body gets put into the ground or into the ocean or wherever it might be put. And when this day comes, the rapture day, if you have already died, Christ is gonna go, come on! Oh, man. And there'll be a resurrection, and, a, and never fear, a reconstitution, and a perfection. And your body will be raised and joined to your spirit, and those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up right after that, and all of us will be translated. That's a theological term saying your body is going to undergo a change you're gonna become glorified, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. That is the blessed hope of the Christian. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's why I'm not worried about what happens to my body when I die. Just cut, just dig a hole and put me in it. Should have had, that, should have had the words for that. Jerry wrote a song. It doesn't have good rhythm, it doesn't have a melody, but it's got a great words. Just dig a hole and put me in it because I don't need that body anymore. That's exactly right. And yet God is so good, he's going to resurrect our body. And we will have a body like his. You want to read about that? Go to John chapter 21 and read about him walking into the, into the room, the doors being shut. You understand what that means? That our bodies will be somehow physical in a new kind of way. He came into the room, the doors being shut, and he said, touch my hand, touch my side. Later he ate fish. Oh, thank God there will be fish to be eaten in heaven. Yeah, it's going to be an existence we don't know. That's what's next on God's timetable. Once, that, you know, once you die, you go to heaven, or once the rapture happens, you go to heaven. Either way, we're all there. All the Christians are there. And of course, that's where, that's where the hard time starts. This time called the tribulation. It has a number of names in the scripture. One of them is a different name for it is given here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that's, the same, that's a synonym for tribulation, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. God says that when we are taken out of the world, he is going to turn his attention not primarily to the world, but to Israel. If you read the book of Daniel, you understand that God predicted the rest of, of history for Israel, and this time, called the tribulation, called the day of the Lord, called Jacob, uh, the 70th week of Daniel, called the time of Jacob's trouble, it's all about Israel. And the whole point of it is for God to get Israel to turn around and look at the cross and go, we were wrong. 
And there's going to be a, a wholesale revival of Jewish people during that time. Not every single one, but many, many, many thousands, millions for all I know, are going to come to Christ in, of the Jewish that are ethnically Jewish. They're going to turn to him. But that time of tribulation begins when they say peace and safety. Right here, when we're taken off the planet as the recent movie with Nicolas Cage, you know, the recent remake of the, um, whatever it was, the Rapture movie, um, there's gonna be a time of turmoil and some world power is gonna rise up and he's gonna be called the Antichrist and all of those things that happen in the book of Revelation. And there's gonna be a time of peace, but it won't last long because the Antichrist is really all about getting his own worship. And so then there'll be a period of, of I don't exaggerate when I say all heaven will break loose. Not all hell, there's no power in hell. But all heaven will break loose on the earth and many, many people are gonna die and many, many people are gonna be saved, be born again during that time. And at the end of that time, there will be a great battle and there will be a judgment called the sheep and goats judgment. You say, well, I've never heard of that judgment. Well, we don't talk about that a lot because frankly, it doesn't concern us. But it should concern us because of the people who will be left here on the planet. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this time right here at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will not just come and grab people off the planet, he will come to the planet. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. David told God he wanted, to, he wanted to build him a temple. And God said, that's a great sentiment, David, but you've been a man of war. Your son's going to build the temple. But because you had that heart, Here's what I'm going to do for you. Somebody from your line is always going to be on the, on the throne ruling Israel. And that prophecy and that promise was built upon to where we know that Jesus Christ himself is going to sit on the throne of David. It's a literal throne in a literal place called Jerusalem with a literal rule. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. At the end of the tribulation, there will be some people left alive, both believers and unbelievers. And the sheep and goats judgment is God's judgment between the believers and the unbelievers. The believers will be welcomed into the fellowship of Christ in the kingdom. Come into the kingdom that's been prepared and promised for you this millennial time frame, and the others who did not believe in him will be sent to begin their eternal time in hell. Now this is where we get to the part that 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about when it says believers are going to rule the world, gonna judge the world. 
because the next time frame we have here is the millennium, a thousand years. It's the literal reign of Christ on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem over the whole world for a thousand years. Now, you can find all kinds of ideas on what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like, but a thorough study of the scripture leaves you with one conclusion, a real reign of Christ from a real Jerusalem on a real throne. From Isaiah chapter 2, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah was a prophet. God gave him some, some revelation about what was ahead for them. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the latter days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And that's talking about, if, if, if you've not studied the, the topography of Jerusalem, the topography of Israel, Jerusalem is situated on a hill. Every time people, Jewish people talk about going to Jerusalem, they talk about going up to Jerusalem. No matter what direction you come from, you go up to Jerusalem. It would be like, you know, like I live on Swede Hill, if you had a city on the very top of the hill and, and then it was, there was a basin all around it. The mountain of the Lord's house, the temple, will be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, another name for Jerusalem, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, is that happening now? No. Nobody in the world is going, let's go up to Jerusalem and hear the Lord teach his word. But that's what's going to happen in this time frame called the millennium. Because not only is Christ going to rule, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Now, there's, there's an important aspect of this, and I'll look at some scripture in just a minute, but I want you to understand something. When Christ came the first time, his general activity and his general appearance was what we would call normally human. I'm not diminishing his divinity, but I'm saying he walked here and there, he sat, he slept, he ate, he was hungry. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he was divine, he was completely righteous and so on. But he moved about from place to place. That was a, a willful, purposeful limitation of his being. He did not exist in all places at one time. In his divinity he does, but he limited the expression of himself in that way. In this time frame right here, what we just read is going to be the norm for Christ and the world. The, 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 the temple will be on top of the mountains, will be exalted above the hills, and the people will say, come, let's go up and listen to the Lord teach. They're not saying, Sunday morning, we're gonna sit in our house and God is gonna beam it into our ears. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but you have to stop and say, what is your image of the kingdom of God? I don't know if we've ever stopped to think that Christ is actually going to manifest his presence in a similar way that he did the first time. 
Christ will be present on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and he will use born-again, glorified believers to help him rule the world, beginning with the apostles. So Jesus said to them, to the, to the twelve, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. <coughs> That's a very specific promise given to the apostles about Israel. Now we fast forward to the book of Revelation. Listen to this. And this is toward the end of the book of Revelation, so everything's almost done, but we're right here in this millennial time. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Who are those people? Those are the martyrs of this tribulation people, people who were Christians and who were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When the tribulation ends, everybody who's been martyred out of the tribulation also takes up the rule with Christ. Now, here's another way to say that. Every person who gets born again and dies during the tribulation essentially fits into that that broad statement. Christ will judge, but in his glorified body. Now, there's one more group of people that get in on this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's us. Here's three specific promises. The apostles, the martyrs out of the tribulation. I think it's broadly all of the Christians out of the tribulation. (coughs) All of them who die, who basically will be martyred. And us. Christians are destined to assist Christ in his rule of the earth for a thousand years, and in some way that includes rule over the angels as well. Now here is a, um, a Bible challenge for you. Where else in the Bible does it talk about Christians ruling over angels? Uh, trick question, nowhere. This is the, 1 Corinthians 6 is the only place in the Bible that says anything about us ruling over angels. Now when you, when you see the word judge, As Christians, and when we think forward toward the eternal times and we hear the word judge, we're always thinking about um, life and death, hell and heaven, but the judgment that God is talking about has more to do with the stuff of life and the, the, the life that is going on in the millennium. You see, there is a judgment we will not have. And that judgment is spoken about in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. (coughs) And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. This is talking about the great white throne judgment, And there's only one person on that throne, and it's God. You and I aren't going to have anything to do with deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But we are going to help Christ 
rule the world for a thousand years. Christ will judge. He will be on the throne in Jerusalem in his glorified earthly body. He will not be everywhere at once. He will mediate his rule through us. You know, I learned that. I I began to really grasp that. Oh, where'd that passage go? Well, the one from the one from Isaiah that I read a couple minutes ago. Everybody's going to go up to Jerusalem to hear from God. That means that the presence of Christ is going to be voluntarily limited, if you will. He will be the king on the throne, and we will be his assistants throughout the world. We could get sent back to Ferndale. Now, what's going to go on during the, 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 the millennial time is a, is a great rebuilding of the earth. And, and there's going to be, you know, it's going to revert back to the time of Christ in terms of, of healing. There's going to be worship in the temple that is a remembrance, not a, not a sacrifice for sins like the Old Testament, but a remembrance of the sacrifice for sins. All kinds of things going on. It's... But there's a parallel to the time we're in now. How does God reach the world now? Through us, okay? He doesn't shout from the heavens. He could. He doesn't come down personally. He could. He's given us the word and committed to us the ministry. Now, we fast forward into the millennial time. Couldn't Christ do it all himself? Absolutely. Why has he chosen to use us in his rule of the earth for a thousand years. I would assume two things. One, to bless us. And two, to further give us some way to glorify him. We'll be in a perfected body, in a perfected soul. And so the question that we need to ask is, how will we be able to rule the world in that day? Well, first of all, we'll be able to rule the world in that day by our character, which is Christ-likeness. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This little verse summarizes the whole process of the Christian life. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the blood of Christ is applied to you, the sacrifice of Christ is applied to you, and you are sinless before God. And yet in this life, there is work to be done to put off sin and to put on righteousness. We're sinless before God in our position because otherwise none of us would be ready to go to heaven at any given moment. And yet God is allowing us and enabling us to put off sin, to put on righteousness. So there is a sense in which we are perfected forever. There is a sense in which we are being sanctified That is the process that is going on with us, and that process will go on until this day. Now we are the children of God, but it's not yet been revealed what we will be, but we know that when he is revealed, when he comes in that rapture time and calls us up off the planet or resurrects our body, and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. The purifying fire of God's righteousness will just finish the work of salvation in our bodies and in our souls and we will enter heaven with him completely sinlessly perfect. When the the 
millennium starts, when the rule of Christ starts on earth, we will be sinlessly perfect coming to help Christ rule. Can you imagine never sinning? Can you imagine never giving in to temptation? Can you imagine always speaking in a godly way? Can you imagine being completely unprejudiced toward people? Can you imagine being completely loving? Can you imagine a mind undiminished by sin? That's the kind of people we will be. We'll be perfected by God and sent out to rule with him and rule for him. But there's one more thing that's going to enable us to rule, and that is our knowledge, which is the word of God. The word of God. How is Jesus gonna rule the world? Is he gonna come up with a new set of rules? No, these rules right here. Scripture talks about him ruling with a rod of iron. And, and of course, if I could help you understand how the whole thing's gonna play out, Scripture also says that at the end of a thousand years, Satan is gonna be loosed. He's tied up the whole time in hell. He's gonna be loosed, and he is gonna lead a great rebellion against God. And you say, well, who's gonna rebel against God? The people, the children, and the children's children, and the multiple generations of people born to those believers who came through the tribulation, some of them are gonna believe, and some of them are gonna be unbelievers, but all of them will obey because Christ is gonna rule with a rod of iron. And we will be out there helping him enforce God's rule, and so people will go along, they'll go along, but when Satan comes and says, we can throw this off, they're gonna go, yes, I've been waiting for this. And they're gonna follow him, and you know how long the battle is gonna last? Scripture says he's gonna come, boom, and it's gonna be done. It's Satan's one last chance. But during that time frame, when we are judging with him, we will not carry out our own ideas. We will not apply our own wisdom. We will not have an opinion that changes. We will apply God's word to his world just as Christ would if he were there. In other words, he's gonna be in Jerusalem, I'm gonna be in Ferndale, and I'm gonna have his word, and I'm gonna say, this is the standard, friend. And that will be what is enforced. Now come back with me to 1 Corinthians 6. I know that's a long excursion out, but you gotta understand, we are going to judge the world. Verse two, do you not know that the saints are gonna judge the world? We're gonna be there in that millennial time frame with Christ, having some part in his rule of the world. And he says, if you will be able to do that, can't you settle a dispute now between brothers or sisters? Turn, look back at chapter five, verse three. This, is, this same truth is why Paul says in verse three of chapter five, I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged. I've made a decision as though I were present what needs to happen. You say, well, God expects us to be able to judge because we're gonna judge someday and if we're gonna judge someday by the character of Christ and his word, don't we have those things already? Don't we have the word of God? 
Don't we have the character of Christ? Now, we don't have it in full measure, do we? And that's our problem. And that causes us to be, to be, to, to be challenged somewhat when it comes to making judgments. And so my last challenge to you is, what prepares us to fulfill the command of 1 Corinthians 6 now? Before I am perfected in body and soul and made perfectly able to judge, how can I be a godly judge now? The word here is practice. Practice judging? No. Practice living. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, the meat of God's word, belongs to those who are full of age, that is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Just about every week when you hear an interview with Pete Carroll or one of the Seahawks, how, you know, how are you going to win the game this week? Well, it's all about basics. You know, um, basics which is, you know, you tackle a certain way, you run a certain way, you follow your routes a certain way. It, all these football fundamentals, it's all about basics. I'm guessing the coach on the other side says the same thing. And so somehow... One of those teams must exercise or practice more or better to where when it comes game time, they are more ready to go. Can you imagine, I mean, you see a guy like Marshawn Lentz, he, he, he runs and he pushes a guy off and he escapes out over here and he goes like that. Can you imagine him doing that if he didn't practice if he didn't work out, if he didn't lift the weights, if he didn't run the, run the drills, if, you know, I mean, the, he, he, physically he's just an animal, but it doesn't happen without practice. How are you going to become wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers and sisters? Practice knowing God's word. Every day... Spiritual maturity is the result of knowing and living God's truth. We become wiser every time we act on God's truth. And until you act on God's truth, till you put it to practice in your life, it's not really there. I knew a man years ago in one of the emergency service organizations that I served who who was a, a, a smart guy, he had a smart job, and he went to classes that the state offered and became uh, you know, certified to train the trainer kind of a thing, and this and this and this, and he was real smart and all this stuff, but he was kind of a disaster in the field. Okay, He had knowledge, but he did not have wisdom. He had knowledge, but he did not have skill, because his knowledge was all in the head and it wasn't worked out in real life, in real situations. God's word needs to be picked up a piece at a time, chewed, taken in, digested, and worked out day by day by day. And as you do that, you become genuinely wise. 
And when people come and say, I'm having a difficulty with this and this, or me and this brother or sister, we can't get along over this, you're able to look. And it's not because you are so smart, it's because God is so smart in you. And you have the wisdom. That's why Paul says in verse five of 1 Corinthians six, isn't there one wise man among you? Yeah, there should be. I've been given some instructions from my doctor about how I'm supposed to take care of my shoulder. Every day that I carry out those instructions, my shoulder rebuilds itself more. When I fail to carry out those instructions, if, if I failed, I could end up ruining what's already been done. Now, if I were to do that, if I were to say, well, you know, I know what the doctor said, but, you know. And if I had to have surgery again, you'd scold me. And that would be right. God has made it possible for you and me to be wise enough to care for the disputes that arise between brothers and sisters. Are you following the doctor's orders to get wise? Heavenly Father, oh, I want to be a wise man. I want to, be, I want to know your word well enough to help everybody who, who needs help. And I pray that you would make it so. I know that means I have to walk with you more carefully. Please help me to do it. Father, I pray for every person here that you will help all of us to practice what you are teaching us so that we can all become wise, so that this church can be a place that follows your instruction from 1 Corinthians 6, even better so that this church is a place where we don't have disputes with one another. Thank you for our time this morning, Father. Bless as we sing and commit ourselves to you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.